Well, hi everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm with my friend, noted bon vivant, wit, and canut. <laughs> In that order. <laughs> and blonde. Thank you. He's, he wants the, the natural look to show out here in Fred 62 in Los Feliz. I'm here with Professor Ira Wagman. All joking aside, Ira, it's a great privilege to have you here in the pod. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's really exciting. And we're going to have kind of a fun time because after we've done this terribly serious discussion, we're going to sit down and chow down with your wife and child. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, so yeah, it's going to be great. Too. Yes, they're very excited. But for now, let's talk about what you're up to right now. Sure, yeah. Well, I'm here as a Fulbright Fellow. Uh, I'm the Fulbright Visiting Chair in uh, in Public Diplomacy at in the Annenberg School at USC. Um, so, um, just to, that's University of Southern California. Could you explain what the Fulbright scheme is? Yeah, I mean the Fulbright. I mean Fulbright is basically a program that was started by. Um, by, uh, by the American government, actually, uh, a number of years ago, to encourage, um, you know, academic exchange um, and to... Uh, you mean freeloaders coming over here and drinking our beer? Indeed. Is that what you're talking Indeed. about? Indeed. Uh, but, also to, but also to allow students to travel, <laughs> yeah. not just for faculty, but also to allow uh, students to travel to other countries. And, um, and so I'm the... Um, so there's an arrangement between uh, Canada and the United States to have professors uh, both teach at Canadian universities, but also to have professors as visiting professors at American universities. Um, and so that's uh, so I guess a kind of American soft power I guess is a way to, to put it um, good fantastic and I should say folks just in case you're not aware of this to get a Fulbright of the kind that Ira has is an extraordinary thank achievement thank you uh, Toby it's a real marker of high academic quality and I don't know why you're laughing. I, <laughs> I mean, that's, I'm, I'm incredibly flattered. My I pathetic mean. attempt to say something positive yeah. and genuine mm. falls. I think it's the sort of Canadian sincerity test that I just <laughs> failed. That's, that that's, right? that's true, yeah. No, that's true. <laughs> no, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm over the moon um, about it. And um, it's an incredible compliment. And it's a great chance to get to do some research that um, that I really want to do and a chance to hang out down here. And I, I mean, today it was snowing uh, in Ottawa where I live. Um, otherwise, um, and so my colleagues at Carleton University in Ottawa have been posting, you know, on Facebook that they, you know, that it's snowing. And so I have to say, I, I like being away from that even for a short while. I can understand. Now, in terms of that research, I guess the work that I associate you with in the years I've known you mm. um, is at least in part about the history of the communications discipline, which yeah. it seems to me you know better than anybody I've ever met, <laughs> apart from people who perhaps embody it because they just have lived right, around part lived of so it. long. You know it really well, but you're doing something quite different at the moment, aren't you? Can you yeah. tell us about that? Yeah, I am. I mean, it's in some ways, in some ways it's related. The, the project is about is basically about the use of d- different kinds of media th- of, of different kinds of media by the United the United Nations system um, in the years after in the early years of its establishment. Um, right. So it's a project really that's interesting. It's a historical project. It's a project about sort of media and post war reconstruction, um, which is an attempt to try and think a little bit through that period, kind of forty seven to sixty, which to me seems kind of you know, uh, wholly um, underthought um, and under-theorized, sure. both both from a historical point of view, but also in terms of the, the, the sort of history of communications as a um, uh, history of communications theory. So lots of people talk about, um, you know, this sort of historical development of the field or the key thinkers. And the 50s and early 60s, it seems to me, is kind of an underthought, um, an underthought thing. So one part of it that How I was... I miss the Cold War. Indeed. Cold I do. War? I, 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 I do. It was so much simpler back then. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, so one part of the project um, that I worked on a little bit before was about the use of television at UNESCO, um, and right. that UNESCO came up with... Um, uh, this is United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. And by the way, the United, was that the insistence of the United States that the word cultural was included? That's right, that, that, uh, indeed. Um, and so that, this, that part of the project was, um, was about... Um, that. UNESCO came up with this idea of collective television watching, um, which was called the Teleclub. Teleclub, which was a a kind of amalgam between the French um, Cine Club, collective Cine, um, but also farm uh, a farm radio in Canada in the 1930s, where people would sit and listen to radio in a collective setting and then talk about it um, with a you know uh, then when the programs were over, talk about it with a group leader and then you know enact you know figure out how to enact changes um, at the on the home front. And actually, if you go back to the early days of vaudeville in the United States, there 
was a guy who gave, called up and gave a lecture about the film you were about to that's see. That's right. Yeah. And then had conversation after. Yeah, that's right. So, so this project was about. So that that part of the project was about kind of reconstructing that moment as both, you know, a moment in the sort of pre prehistory of television, right? The experiment, you know, the, when before television becomes a, a domestic medium. Um, but also... We're waiting for his wife and daughter in that Oh, okay. So, okay. Yeah. We'll come back to the menus then, thank you. Um, but also about, it's, um, the, the thing about these teleclubs was that they were intensely studied. Um, right. Um, so that it's an early example in the history of the study of television. Um, and then this model of collective television watching becomes almost like a format, um, because then it becomes replicated in places like, first it starts off in rural France, then it goes to rural Japan, um, and then eventually becomes a model that's used in development efforts in places in West Africa, um, in India. Um, so it's so anyway. So in that's the, in the days when the Ford Foundation, the Social Sciences Research Council, right. U.S. entities, not governmental, and their equivalents in places like Canada, really dominated the development agenda and specifically the notion of nation building that would be safe from Maoism and Marxism and Leninism, predicated on national institutions and communication infrastructure. Absolutely, creating the modern subject. Absolutely, that? yeah. And those organizations are also, you know, the containers, if you will, for so much of for so much development of communications as a discipline that they supported so much communications research um, as well. And so that's the long backstory. While I'm right. here at U while I'm here at USC, um, the next part of this project is about looking at the relationship between UNICEF and Hollywood. And UNICEF stands for the United Nations uh, f Fund for Children. Right. Um, and this is about um, this is about uh, and the case study there is the first sort of brand Angelina, uh, the first kind of celebrity, uh, the first celebrity the diplomat, by looking at the case of Danny Kay, um, and uh, and the idea that celebrities can perform a kind of diplomatic uh, purpose, um, and so I'm here to just to start kind of start that research and thinking about um, uh, in thinking about sort of the role that in this case film plays and actors play to help. You know, to help to communicate um, UNICEF's ideas and to raise awareness, but also to, but also in both of the cases that I've looked at so far, to communicate multilateralism as a, as an idea. And more importantly, to be chef de mission of the Borscht Belt, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Right. So when I was a child, <laughs> right, the globalized shtick. Yeah, right. Absolutely. You know, kvetching globally. That's right. When I was a child, I did think of Danny Kay as my representative among adults. I really did. Wow. Partly because I felt as though he saw the world the way I did, and partly because this UNICEF stuff was so wrapped up in everything he did, including. Tommy the Tuba sounds right. right through to, I don't know, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty or whatever. Hans Christian Anderson. Hans Christian Anderson. Yep. Um, my experience of interpolation, or that idea of being hailed, comes clearly as it does for many people in certain kinds of sporting event and certain kinds of music. But the first, one of the most powerful recollections for me is actually Danny Kaye. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was an incredibly, he was an incredibly popular figure. Um, and uh, it's interesting, actually. I mean, first of all, he was an incredibly, an incredibly popular figure. Many people talked about the fact that he was childlike. Um, so children really liked him and felt like, you know, he, he was one of them in some way that he could communicate to them. Um, but the other thing is that Kay, I mean, a lot of people say that kind of Kay's, you know, shtick both in film and then on television, right, um, was decided, was incredibly middle brow and the kind of orient, kind of orientation, which made him very accessible. Um, and what's interesting, I think, about the timing of this, uh, timing of this research is that this is, this year, 2013, is the centenary of Kay's birth date. Although the actual birth date, I think, is a bit um, up for discussion. And so the Library of Congress, for example, um, held a, a series of events to celebrate um, his work and the work of his wife, uh, Sylvia Fine, who herself was a, uh, a, a lyricist and kind of avant-garde musician, um, and who, among other things, uh, taught uh, musical theater courses here at USC um, for a little while. And so, uh, so there was a kind of a celebration of Kay's work and the kind of highlighting of his humanitarian work, um, in addition to, to other things. And so this, uh, this large exhibit, which is now on the web of the Library of Congress, is now actually kind of tracked and there's a little exhibit set up in the Disney Center here in Los Angeles. So I think, you know, I think people, Kay is kind of, an, I mean, I think Kay's was incredibly popular and then sort of fell out, um, or for some reason has slipped off the, off the radar in some way. And so I'm kind of curious about, I'm sort of curious about 
about his work for UNICEF again as a as a way to sort of communicate you know, to communicate, of course, the plight of children, and, you know, to advocate on behalf of, of children, but also to sort of, as a way of communicating the values of the United Nations. Um, because for a while there, until, you know, like for a short while, and it was a short while, the United Nations people actually, you know, <laughs> believed uh, quite strongly in the potential of the United Nations and its agencies to do things well in the world. Well, the United States and other first world countries believed that until such time as they ceased to be a majority in the United Indeed. Nations. And Indeed. then they found they didn't believe in it quite as much. Indeed, and again, communications is you know the communications discipline is so much part of that story, right? That the Nuiko um, debates um, were part of the sort of um, you know talking back, if you will. Now you say Kay fell off the map a bit. There were a couple of factors in Kay's world that didn't occur to me when I was watching him in 1966: queerness and Jewishness. Right. And I'm interested in those a bit. Whether you see those textually at all. Right. Uh, in his performances, whether they be public performances for UNICEF or whether right. they be acting, as it were, right. and whether they have anything to do with his decline in public standing. Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, the, uh, I mean, the, the queerness um, refers to, uh, in some ways, the story about an alleged relationship um, with a few <laughs> with a few actors, Florence Olivier, right, was um, was one of them, and. Uh, and of course, the, the Jewishness is, is something else. I mean, oftentimes Kay would end up playing characters um, who uh, were like he would play Russians, um, for example, and then could play up his accent, um, which was a Russian accent but also a Jewish accent. Of course, I mean, if he ends up, I mean, he's in White Christmas, um, and so you know, I think I think that Kay was negotiating, I think, probably a better word. It was probably negotiating his Jewishness, I think, in his performances and distilling them in lots of, in, in, uh, in lots of different ways. Because it's not just, it's not integrative, because he's always no. different. It's not denying, I don't think. No, I don't, I mean, I don't get the sense that, I mean, I, uh, personally, I don't get the sense that it is in those performances. I, I mean, I think it's in, you know, I think Kay was, I mean, I think he was a... Uh, he was a, like a, a showman, um, and that some of his earliest work on vaudeville shows was now I can't remember the name of the like the title, but the one in between performances who would just kind of keep the audience engaged. Oh, sure, I know who you mean. Right, I can't, no, I can't remember the exact title. And so it was like anything for a laugh, anything to keep it going, anything yeah. to keep people engaged. Just doing the shtick, basically. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and so if that meant, you know, like, uh, you, you know, I mean, anything for a laugh, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, and so I, my sense is that that's always been a part of his career, and I think that's always been a, I think, I think, I, I mean, I think that's a way of sort of explaining the way he sort of negotiates and um, uh, tries out. That's interesting. So he becomes, in a sense an interlocutor across cultures just as he does a link man across yeah. genres. Yeah, and I think this is part of I mean I think this is part of his the, the sort of the production of his celebrity status. Um, but I also think, you know, I think one of the things that's that's come up early in the research and I'm you know I'm not that necessarily long, but one of the things that's, that I've come to realize during the research is the legacy, I think, of the Red Scare and the Hollywood Ten. Um, this is the so-called blacklist, and blacklist. the moment when the Hollywood studios are called upon, essentially, by the U.S. federal government in the late 40s through to the late 50s to, well, really, it's the, it's the mid to late 50s that, that takes most effect get rid of the fairly large number of often Jewish, often socialist, often communist Marxists, right. particularly in screenwriting, but also in acting and directing. And when we see a large array of very prominent public intellectuals in those roles, losing their livelihoods or being rats. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, I mean one of the things that's interesting about that is that Kay was part of a group of actors. Uh, Humphrey Bogart, I think, was um, was one of them who went to pro who went to Washington. Hope uh, Bob Hope, I think, was one of them. Also went to, went to Washington. Bob, really? Mm, I'm very hard to believe. Maybe it wasn't Bob Hope. But, maybe, de but, but definitely, but um, Bogart, definitely Bogart. Bogart and McCall yeah. led the march. That's right. Yeah. yeah sorry. Um, and I believe uh, they were. I believe they called themselves the Committee of the First Amendment or something like that. Um, and that basically. They were went to Washington and were disappointed about the fact. Kay, in particular, was disappointed about the fact that politicians didn't want anything to hear, uh, didn't want to hear from them, or wasn't that they didn't have much influence and couldn't understand why these Hollywood actors who have so much influence culturally have so little um, politically. And so I think 
I think that um, the move to, U to, to the United Nations and to UNICEF, I think, while in addition to, you know, for his own reasons, I think was also part of an attempt to try and legitimize the work that actors and the work that Hollywood does um, in a way um, to make it a more serious pursuit than simply just entertainment and, 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 uh, and diversions. Wow, and of course this blended very well with his, I keep having this word shtick coming to mind, but his address of people. Yeah, Working absolutely. with UNICEF made perfect sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the film that he made, I mean, the, so the film that he makes of traveling around to visit um, the UNICEF field stations, which is the stuff I'm working on now, um, is the 1954 film Assignment Children. Um, so he travels around with a... So the, so the story, the way the story is told, and I haven't figured, I, I'm trying to figure out whether this is true. He's on a flight back from London, he's flying back from London to New York that gets rerouted because there's a plane on, the, there's a fire on the plane. And he ends up, I think he ends up talking to the, he bumps into the executive director of UNICEF. This is the way the story tells. And then says the, the executive director of UNICEF is trying to uh, improve the status of UNICEF as an organization. This is part of UNICEF transitioning um, out of a, a refugee relief agency um, into just its own standalone agency, and this is before child right, child rights. Um, so it set the fire on the plane. That's right. Basically, yeah, that's fire right. next time. <laughs> that's right. Um, and so the story is he, you know, talks to Kay about whether he would be involved. Kay hadn't accordingly hadn't thought of much about it. They invite him to the United Nations to come uh, to take a look around. He agrees, and then Paramount supplies some Paramount supplies the cameras and the crew, and they travel around all of these field stations. But that film um, then circulates um, in lots of different places as a as a um, as a, a preamble to to movies in theaters, like as a trailer almost. Um, but then it travels around to educational institutions and so on and so forth. It's a really big part of uh, it's a really big part of UNICEF's uh, UNICEF's efforts, but also I think it's also really interesting to think about the ways in which uh, the ways in which K sort of acts as a because of the shtick and the middle brow and the kind of adopting different sorts of things is the ways in which K is a kind of medium and a kind of mediator, mm. um, a global mediator. And when you think about the United Nations, the United Nations and its agencies are really communications institutions, right, that these kind of multilateral institutions, um, you know, can be thought of as communications institutions built on the idea that, you know, dialogue um, will be the thing that will stop, um, you know, uh, catastrophes from happening, right? And again, like, we know now from communication, in communication theory, that dialogue is itself not a, an unproblematic concept or an, un, you know, a, a difficult concept, but... Um, but so it's interesting the ways in which the United Nations kind of embodies um, you know, kind of concepts and communications, which is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so kind of interested in it. Um, and the same thing with the stuff on UNESCO, which is so many communication scholars have worked for UNESCO in some capacity. In some produce, and there are all these UNESCO chairs. Of there are all these UNESCO the chairs. There's that wonderful bit of mythologies where Roland Barthes writes about the humanistic underpinnings of the idea of one world is embodied in art and so on, right. but definitely underpins this liberal humanitarian impulse. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Pardon me, of these organizations. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, like the history of, I mean, what's fascinating about, I mean, we were talking about UNICEF before, what's really interesting about UNESCO now is UNESCO has largely uh, digitized its its archives, not, not all of them, but particularly for the last 30 or 40 years, and if you look at if you start to look through the database, you discover like the history of communications is playing out right in the database. So when cybernetics is in, then UNESCO is writing these reports about cybernetics um, and, and development. Norbert Wiener and these sorts of people. Indeed. In, in the 1970s, UNESCO also sponsors, well, first of all, the IMCR. The, the uh, International Association for Media and Communication Research, as it is now known, originally International Association of Mass Communication. That's right. Um, was developed in part by UNESCO. Um, and so, you know, and by the 1970s, uh, there are, and UNESCO sponsors all these journals. There's, you know, when psychoanalysis is in, there's all these articles about psychoanalysis of art theft, um, <laughs> right? And so, you know, uh, so very little actually. So, you know, uh, these kinds of institutions, of course, can be studied politically and about their political effects yeah. and, and, you know, the ways in which they embody certain kinds of ideological concepts and so on and so forth. But what they also do is they serve as fascinating containers 
for the history of communications research, which is, again, one of the reasons why I'm kind of drawn to it. When I lived in New York, one of the things I used to do, because, as you know, I don't have a life, <laughs> was sit in the NYU library late at night Wow. And early in the morning. Wow, you're, you're, you're smashing all of the, uh, the preconceived ideas I have about you now, Toby. Go ahead. Reading League of Nations bound magazines wow. about film in particular. Whoa. Right. They used to produce these film magazines where every article, just didn't last too long, was in Italian, Spanish, French, German, right. and English. Right, 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 right. But very much like how, you, as UNESCO saw the media more broadly later on. But they would be this liberal human internationalism that could be achieved through cinema mm -hmm. and education. Yeah. Via the utilization of the civilizing, in inverted commas, languages of the West. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Um, a, a colleague of mine in Canada, Zoe Druick, who teaches at Simon Fraser in Vancouver, has written a lot about the use of documentary because, she, as she points out, the first head of the mass communications division at UNESCO is John Grierson. Um, this, you know, from the British documentary Scottish movement. slash Canadian documentaries, who actually right. really only Found made it. about one film, but right. nevertheless. Right, but was responsible for, is the, you know, the first, uh, the first director of the National Film Board of Canada. And founded documentary film in Australia. Okay, right. It was brought out at the beginning of the war yeah. to write a memo, which she was best at, right. saying, you should be more like Canada. That's right, that's right. <laughs> which so, we've been trying to do ever since. Yeah, so I mean, so uh, so Zoe writes about the, the, the use of documentary, right, as as part of these efforts, right. So I mean, it's a fascinating again, it's a fascinating, uh, you know, fascinating for people who are interested in you know, kind of, you know, in things like the history of media and development. So you know, people who study media and development, um, you know, don't ha haven't talked a lot about that particular period in time, um, and so or people who are interested in the sort of non-theatrical use of cinema or the non-domestic use of television or even the use of more banal uh, media forms. So for example, if you, you know, uh, uh, like UNESCO circulated all these film strips and, and films on things like the productive use of chalkboards. Right? <laughs> so how could you use chalkboards and chalk, literally chalk, to do things like educate, you know, for literacy or for, you know, family planning? I tried to do that, both those things, <laughs> last night at the University of California, Riverside, but on a whiteboard with a marker that no one could read. Yeah, that's right. That's so right. I think I need an update of exactly this training. Well, I think people who people who use PowerPoint too much could probably, you know, benefit from, from similar training. So yeah, so it's a, it's a really interesting, it's, it's, it's a... It's, it's a it's a richly, it's an incredibly rewarding uh, way, although I admit a somewhat, uh, it's a somewhat circuitous way, but it's a, it, it's a richly rewarding way to think about that particular period in time historically, um, but also to think through ideas associated with, um, with the idea of, um, with ideas associated with communications, both in their political sense, but also in the, the sense of the ways in which they were studied over time. And Ira, I wonder, given your perspective as someone who is very international, very cosmopolitan, oh, thank you, Tony. spent time in several provinces, That's right, in several, Canadian provinces. <laughs> no, in, in several countries, and familiar with different communications traditions, both for listeners who may be familiar with communication studies and those who aren't, could you give us a broad sketch of some of the similarities and differences in thinking about communications media between, say, the US and, let's say, the rest of the world? Right. Be that Canada, be that Eastern Europe in the old dispensation, Western Europe, mm. Asia, Africa, Latin America, whatever. Right. I mean, how does it pan out? Because many of us think of it as occupied terrain, as a U.S. discipline. Right, right. Better well, or worse? Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I mean, I mean, there's the simple, like there's the there's the kind of pat answer, right? The pat answer is that is that in Canada at least we tend to reproduce the famous Lazarsfeld critical administrative um, distinction, where the argument was this is it, a Paul Lazarsfeld, who was a very eminent Amy Gray social scientist into the U.S. refugee from the horrors of Nazi regime and others, uh, who chomped on cigars and told off Pierre Bourdieu and the French for not being enough like him. <laughs> 
So Lazarsfeld, La so Lazarsfeld uh, you know, came up with this difference between what he called administrative research, which was research in the service of um, sort of helping um, society, and by society it could have meant the broadcasting industry, um, which is what um, some of that research was. Um, and then the critical stuff is the stuff that looks more broadly at the relationship between sort of you know, modes of communication and larger social questions. And in Canada, the argument has been that the Canadian communications discipline developed more along those lines. But along the second, along the critical lines, right? But that, in some ways, is is almost an argument. So part of that argument is true, but part of the argument, I think, is grounded in a certain level of smugness about the fact that you know uh, that of a sort of positioning yourself as different from Americans, um, which is the way a lot of which is the way Canadians work, and so um, and it doesn't it fails to take into account the incredible tendency in the Canadian communications tradition to do policy research, in other words, to do research that, that contributes in some way to the policy framework and just as co-opted, indeed, except indeed. more in the name of in the service of cultural nationalism, correct, less in the name of uh, corporate, correct, welfare. correct. And so that's that's the one part. Then there's two other parts, which I'll make hopefully more interesting than that, which is that the second one is, and this actually is interesting for being in, at USC in the study of public diplomacy, which is so many communications departments in the United States started with a concern over propaganda, right? How to study propaganda, uh, whether it works, um, and how it was used, and how it could be used more effectively, how communications can be done more effectively. And so in the shadow of, 19, of the 1940s and 50s, right, this is the way communications departments develop in the United States. In Canada, communications departments don't develop until the late 1960s and into the early 1970s. And the first department that's, uh, that sets up in communication is at Loyola College, which is now uh, Concordia University in Montreal. And that the person who starts it um, is, a, um, is a, Je a Jesuit priest. I was going to say, so it was a Jesuit mm -hmm. private university? Uh, well, it was, a, it, was a public it was a public college, which became a university. And that the, the, uh, the, uh, the person who started it, John O'Brien, um, was a Jesuit priest, a historian of broadcasting, and would then go on to work in the Vatican. Um, in the communications office, so that's so there are these kinds of and the third story, which I think is is really quite interesting, is that is that in the United States is that one of the differences between the, between Canadians and, and, and Americans is the absence in Canada of uh, of the study of rhetoric. So, for example, Canadians I always tell uh, people you know one of the differences between Canadians and Americans is Canadians never study great speeches. Um, Americans. Well, you don't have any. Well, because we don't have any. Um, that there isn't a tradition of, that there isn't a, a, a significant tradition of oratory. You got Lester Pearson. <laughs> That's true. You got true. Abraham Lincoln. That's true. So we read, so, so when, when you ask Canadians what great speeches are, they will probably say, oh, Martin Luther, well, Martin Luther King, I have a dream, or, you know. <laughs> Um, if I'm in Berliner or something like that, right? And we study, I mean, I studied Lincoln-Douglas debates in school. But in Canada, um, it doesn't work that way. So rhetoric, um, which, is a part of, which is a part of lots of communications uh, departments, um, is not, the, there are people who study rhetoric, and my colleague at Carleton, Michael Dorland, has written, co-written an incredible book trying to trace sort of um, the, the history of rhetoric in, in Canadian civic life, but it's not, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, it's not part of the ways in which Canadians study communications. No, and I should say, uh, Iris mentioned both Zoe and Michael, people whom I've been fortunate enough to meet and whose work is brilliant. So mm, thank you. I would highly commend their work to Zoe Jurek and Michael Dorland. Mm. Yes, I mean, that's true, because in the United States, rhetoric or speech communication or forensics or debate, all these terms right. are used, was essentially an innovation in the Midwest to deal with the number of white proletarian or sub-proletarian right. rural idiocy émigrés right. from Europe who lacked a lingua franca right. and needed one when they arrived in the United States in order to have some skerrick of the prospect of class mobility, but more importantly, thank you very much, the capacity to work effectively for quasi-corporate or governmental farm administrations <laughs> and businesses and then on into manufacturing factories and mineral extraction domains. <laughs> right, right. And right. that study, that attempt to give them a form of English, uh, produced what is in this country called NBC English, 
after the famous broadcast network, or in Britain it's called Received Pronunciation, in Australia it's called Educated Australian. Right. I don't know what it's called in Canada. Yeah, I'm not sure what, the, I'm not sure what they Well, you've all it. got it, you all sound yeah. educated and intelligent. Yeah. I have to say, first time I went to Ottawa, when I arrived, one of my ex-wives, then married to me, called me up and said, before you get here, the thing to know is that the homeless guys have three-piece suits. <laughs> I'd never been yeah. to Canada before. Yeah. Anyway, all joking aside, yeah, yeah, yeah. they did. Yeah, yeah, but the three pieces were, were a bit shabby. Yes, but in any event, in the United States, that NBC English, which was technically Ohio English in linguistics, no longer Ohio English in the sense that Ohioans now, unfortunately, have the great southern twang, which is made throughout the spine of the country, and so they have right. to draw, but was, was known as Ohio English, was an attempt to have a non-Asian, non-Latino, non-Jewish, right. non-black, bland Anglo-Saxon form of speech, right. not dissimilar to my own, but is what you get when you watch classical Hollywood cinema right. of the 30s when everyone's trying to sound English and they've invented these absurd right. last names for themselves. Right, right, right. No, and this Canada is had a similar question in terms of a lumpen proletariat immigration, but never in the same numbers and without the same managerial issues. No, no, that's not that's not the, that's not the case. And again, like in Canada, for example, in, in American universities, for example, many American universities make it a requirement to, to take pub courses in public speaking. For example, in Canada, that's not that's not on the that's not enough. That's not a requirement. Whereas at, at Ivy League, it's things like, must be able to swim to the end of the pool. <laughs> I remember, you know, when I used to read thousands of applications for grad school at the film school at NYU, and anybody who went to Johns Hopkins or Columbia would say, thing, in addition to got an A in this and an A in that, would be a chief certificate for 50 <laughs> meter. Yes. <laughs> Duck paddle. <laughs> yes. So the absence. So I mean. So the absence of those sorts of things means that what you get in Canada is a, a is a kind of dynamic and eclectic, um, interdisciplinary, uh, sometimes playful. Um, you know, sort of uh, sort of takes the invitation um, that communications offers as a discipline um, to try out different things. Um, what he's trying to say, but he's a Canadian, so he can't. Is it's better. <laughs> that's not, that's <laughs> not what I said. No. Um, in other words, not. everybody learns to do real things like political economy, history, cultural studies, ethnography, and so on, and not in the service of slavishly the state or corporation. That, yes. <laughs> but he can't say it because although he half at least believes it. But I also am, am a representative of Canada, <laughs> so I'm get shipped out. And how would that compare to your experience in other countries or your understanding of communications in other places? Well, well, I mean, I can say, uh, you know, uh, a few things. Of course, like, you know, in in places like France, um, which is where I spent some, some time, you know, you know, there are very few departments of communication. Right? That, you know, communication finds its place in um, in other in other departments. Um, um, in places like, I mean, I was recently in in Freiburg um, on an exchange, and you know, there it's you know it's located within things like. Um, philology or semiotics, um, uh, which is which is kind of interesting. And places like I also spent some time in places like Denmark. I spent a term in, a, a term up in Aarhus, um, which is a wonderful place, you know, a fabulous department. Um, we have many Danish listeners, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's well, well, and well, many, hello. many German. Oh, fantastic. Um, and uh, so both uh, both Denmark and, and you know Germany. Um, uh, there is, um, you know, sort of a sort of a dynamism which is in, which is in some ways similar. I think in, in some ways similar, some ways eclectic um, um, in the Canadian tradition. Of course, I think what's interesting about the Canadian and the European ones, in particular, is that both have a heavy uh, kind of grant writing culture um, in which, you know, so much um, communications research in, in well, I shouldn't say so much, but. You know, a good amount of communications research in Canada and in Europe relies on or uses, maybe relies on isn't the right word, but uses or makes use of or engages with various kinds of granting opportunities at you know, the European level or at the state level, that kind of stuff, in ways that in the American tradition it doesn't. Because communications for those outside the US is essentially excluded from the two principal 
boondoggles, <laughs> namely the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. Communications is not regarded as a serious discipline, right. and nor is it regarded as something that is of national significance. So like all of the humanities, it's basically shoved aside. Right. The questions that it addresses are looked at by people in psychology, uh, anthropology, right. and political science. Right. Or communications are, disorders on the sciences. Right, pathology, right. speech pathology questions, right. in ways that are completely antipathetic to most of the questions that Ira has been addressing today. Right, right. No, I think that's I think that's certainly true. I mean, was the National Endowment for the Arts ever involved in the funding of... Well, the National Endowment for the Arts is actually not a research institution, right. it's a practitioner institution. The National Endowment for the Humanities has as part of its right, right, right. remit that there be no policy-related research, that there be essentially no social science research. Right, 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 right. So, I mean, this has been very good for Canadians in many ways. Um, the difficulty for communications in the US is that some of its practitioners think they're social scientists, some think they're scientists, some think they're humanists. Right. <laughs> but they're all basically told to fuck off when they <laughs> incline their necks at the trough of these forms of public funding. Right. <laughs> right. Because communications in the US is regarded as a footballer's degree or a basketballer's right. degree. Right, 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 right. Uh, it is not taught at any IV other than one that was bribed to do so. Right. And it's not taught at major research institutions other than those because of their placement in the Midwest basically had this as foundation in the same way right. as they had rural sociology and right. agricultural investigation. Right, right, right. Well, again, like it's it's a, it's one of those cases where it's one of those cases where you're reminded about the fact that so much about particularly in the United States how much communications and media studies springs from the Midwest. Yeah. Um, and how things like, you know, and the ways in which things like you know, culture is drawn from the idea of culture is drawn from agriculture. Broadcasting is like agricultural terms, right? So, and yet, and yet, we tend to think about, you know, we tend to think about, um, we tend almost always to think about media in either, you know, urban terms, particularly about like the history of cinema. Because the panics are all about urban life. Yeah, exactly. But the actual stimulation to media production and research apart from Hollywood, is fundamentally agriculture. Indeed, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's kind of... It's, it's an not your people, and it's not <laughs> my people. <laughs> no, it's, it's the ones bastards. up the middle, that's right. It's the <laughs> ones who drive and come it, up the it, middle. It's other members of Bogoy, but it's just not my peeps. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. Yeah. No, I think we're at one on that. Now, Ira, I wanted to jump in here. I've been jumping in a lot, because as that's you right. know, this is one of, these are some of my favourite... Themes. Plus, I only have about 12 minutes of actual content. Anyway. <laughs> you're not anyways. playing music, right? I know. Uh, in all seriousness, uh, though, um, people, I think, by now, if there are you know, three men and a dog in Stockholm still listening, <laughs> which is always my anxiety, right? Because the data I get about on feedback for these podcasts are fortunately filtered, so they don't tell you how long people stick with it. Right, right, right. I wanted to jump in, even though we've got a bit of time left, to find out or and pass on to listeners where they might find some of your yeah. published available work sure. right now. And yeah, then I sure. wanted to ask if I could a pedagogic question, which is oh, yeah. a serious one. So sure, yeah, yeah, well. sure. So could you lay out for us where folks might be able to locate your work, probably not on Danny Kaye yet, no, 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 but on some other topics. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so I, so I've, I've done, I have kind of, uh, how should I put this? I mean, I take advantage of the fact that, uh, that the beauty of uh, my job um, and where I work and the colleagues that I work for um, make it so that I get a chance to try out a bunch of different things. And so I've managed to publish on a bunch of different things. So the stuff that, I, I mean, most of the stuff that I've tended to write about has been about Canada um, and about the history of cultural policy and about um, about the uh, sort of the, sort of the cultural effects of living under what I would call a kind of policy culture, um, because a policy culture. Yeah, because so much of Canadian cultural production um, is is the, it, it, I mean, in Canada there is a considerable place for this for the state even now, and of course it's in lesser degree. Um, but even now, in the production of so much cultural work, that the state is still involved. Again, it's much less than before, but still prominent. Yep. Many of the laws, um, like many of the laws which are part of um, of this 
um, of the cultural system are still in place. So, um, they are weaker, and there are talks that there are changes, but that they're that they're not. So things like the Telecommunications Act, which governs telecommunications, was last updated, I think, in 1994. The Broadcasting Act, which governs things like television and radio, and I'm saying television and radio because I think it was last updated in 1996, and that there's no references to things like computers or the internet. So cultural nationalism in Canada is still prominent, even although it's not the sort of it's not as prominent as it was before. Right. And so a lot of my writing is about well, what is that? How has that been part of the ways in which the ways in which people write about Canada um, and communications issues, and the ways in which this affects what people see and watch and download? So. So on the Canadian stuff, I've written um, uh, I've written things about uh, I just wrote a piece about format television um, by talking about the case of Deal or no, the Canadian edition of Deal or No Deal, um, and about the fact that in Canada, Canadian editions of global formats are a long-standing part of of the ways of cultural production in Canada. That countries like Canada pro practice import substitutions um, where they where they license works from elsewhere and then replace them with Canadian content. It's some that's happened in magazines and um, in television way before formats, and that basically formats, television, f format television, one of the reasons why formats work so well, I think this is Albert Morin's point, is that they're intensely nationalist, um, that they flatter nationalism, um, that they encourage the development of national editions which play up national difference. Um, so I've written a piece about that in the Canadian Journal of Communications. And, and the Canadian Journal of Communications, which is a fabulous journal, I think is still, and almost throughout its history now, available archived online yes, gratis. Anyone can read its stuff, and it's a terrific thing. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, so that's, got a, that's a piece that's coming up. I wrote a piece a while ago about much music and about music video. Um, much music, pardon my saying, this is the MTV of Canada. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I've written about that in the, in the journal. Um, uh, I'm, there's a piece that's coming out about there's a piece that's coming out in a collection about fair dealing um, and the ways in which uh, artists and um, and creators uh, deal with copyright questions in terms of their ways in which uh, in their practices and behaviors. That's uh, being edited by two uh, by Darren Wurstler, um who teaches at Concordia and Rosemary Coombe, um, who teaches at York. Um, Very, I, I don't know the first editor, but Rosemary Coombe, whom I hope will join us in the pod at some stage is a very brilliant, wonderful anthropologist and law professor yeah. whose book on from about 2000 with Duke on intellectual property and its, in a sense, ethnographic and legal yeah. constituents is quite remarkable and stunning, especially in its promulgation of important ideas of human slash indigenous rights. Yeah, right. That it is, and it's part of that kind of. It was part of that little moment where you had these kind of really interesting books on on copyright, right? James uh, or uh, proper copyright and intellectual property and law. So, Kimber McLeod's book, McLeod. Jane Gaines's book on contested culture. Yeah, um, very good. Um, when it suddenly became kosher to talk about what, when I used to raise it as a complete amateur compared to these authors would find people not just yawning, but actually in some kind of catatonic state where they could not be roused in yeah. any sense to being something that actually everybody's kind of interested yeah. in. Yeah, it's yeah. cool and hip. I missed out on the cool hip bit. Yeah, I just that's got my that. specialty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I always joke I always joke to friends, we, I always joke to friends, if I'm on it, it's over, right? Like, if, if, if I start to look at it, it's not cool well, anymore. In my case, it hadn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. I gave up. Right. And then it became hip. Because I'm a lot older than you, and my hair's a lot less blonde. But when young, it was your colour. In any event... Uh, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Only our mothers could tell us apart. Yeah, yeah. But so, mine's been dead for 25 years, so who's asking? So that's the, So I do this sort of... I, you know, I do some of this sort of, sort of Canadian stuff. I've also written... Um, and then the UNESCO stuff I'm starting to publish in a couple, a couple places. I wrote a piece in French um, um, for a French collection... Uh, there was a conference in Paris about the experimental phase of television, so television from 1935 to 55, um, which resulted in a, a really interesting uh, collection.
collection of, of essays from from all over um, about that experimental period. So, you know, some big people in there, people like Winspiegel um, has a, a piece in there, uh, Jan Olson um, has a piece in there, and so I've got a piece in there. Yeah, but I want to know, you're a big person, I want to know about your piece. sweet of you to see. So I wrote a piece there about the idea of, of UNESCO at the teleclubs and, and the idea of multi, thinking of the United Nations in multilateral media. Yeah. Um, and then I have a piece that's in now in a, a wonderful little journal, I shouldn't say it's little, but a wonderful journal called the Journal uh, for the History of European Television, um, uh, which is called View. Um, and so I have a piece in there which talks about teleclubs, and, but specifically about the idea of thinking about the history of European television beyond what's on the screen to, to think about. To think about, you know, how uh, television, how television watching practices take place, what kinds of issues um, teleclubs can uh, can show us. So that's some of that research. And then the third stuff, um, and then I'll stop talking, is about um, is my occasional foray into writings about new media. Um, and so, um, and when I always, I always say that my job is, it seems to me that my job is to make um, new media so unbelievably banal, um, um, and that um, that I specialize in. I mean, I, while I understand and appreciate the value of the study of new forms of media for their spectacular purposes, um, for politics or for activism or for revolution or whatever, and I, I, that's obviously awesome, um, there is also, I'm, all, I'm always struck about the banal uses of, of media, the ways in which people use the internet to do lots of things. Just, but, uh, just, can I just tweet yeah. about where we are? Yes, of course. That's right, yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Well, like with, Ira, with Ira in Fred 62. Anybody <laughs> nearby? Anybody listening to Duran Duran? Yeah, well, I don't know if you've heard Louis C.K. got this great bit where he says, people always ask him you know, to, to follow him on Twitter, and he says, yeah, but that's not... You're supposed to follow me. I'm not following you. I'm not interested in following you. The job is you're supposed to follow me. You big fucking loser. Um, and so, so I ended up writing. So I've ended up writing about things like. I mean, I write about Facebook. Um, I've written some stuff about Facebook. The F word. Um, the F word. Yes. But but about. I mean, about the ways in which, you know, uh, Facebook is. This was in 2007. Uh, well, that's where I met you, actually, in Banff. Um, up in Alberta um, for a conference about kind of how Canadians communicate, you know, about the about the ways in which kind of new media fit into kind of rhythms and routines of people's lives. That's um, a brilliant, brilliant piece. Uh, Thanks, Toby. Um, so I've written about Facebook a couple times, and then I just wrote I co-wrote a piece in the International Journal of Communications, which is a free a, online, free online, open yeah. access, wonderful, very good uh, publication uh, edited to, uh, by Larry Gross here at, uh, and at USC, Manuel Castells, Manuel Castells, and designed by somebody who presumably is visual. Impaired, but anyway, it's not going to win any award for aesthetics. Um, but uh, a piece I wrote with a fellow named Mike Newman, um, who's like one of my oldest, who's my one of my oldest friends, um, went to summer camp way back when. Um, and he and I wrote a piece about about the use of PowerPoints um, in the classroom and about kind of PowerPoint and academic labor. So I don't know if that's where you're going pedagogically, um, but about about the ways in which there appears to be um, the. PowerPoint is uh, is uh, an example of a medium um, which most people use but have never been taught how to use, and for which there are no guidelines, um, and for which um, very little thought I think has gone into why we use them and the way we use them, and about the sorts of uh, certain kinds of working assumptions that we have about it, and about the ways in which I think what I mean, my argument is always that what has started what started as an audiovisual aid. Right, or well, you could put it. You could put it a different way. It started as a marketing tool. Um, uh, you know, it started as fine art slides for, for for everybody. Right. So it started off as or a, anatomy lectures for everybody. Yeah. Right. What what started off as a what we used to call an audiovisual aid um, has now become the presentations themselves. Um, and that you know, I think some thinking about how we use PowerPoint in the classroom is worth discussing. So that's some of the stuff that I've written. Yeah, that's wonderful. My, my pedagogic question was this. Your remarkable insight for us about the rurality of communications media mm. as they developed in the US, both epistemologically and mm. materially. Remarkable insight. Especially for a city kid who doesn't get out to the country very often, but yes, go ahead. Here's my pedagogic, my educational issue. When I sprinkle around, as it were, to the students who are unfortunate enough to find themselves falling asleep in front of me, the insight that broadcasting is about the spreading of seeds, 
and this, mm -hmm. this indexical of precisely the tendency you've identified. They look at it as if to say, get the boring man off the stage. <laughs> yeah. I don't care. It means nothing to me. Right. Go away. Right. 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 How do you make these, I think, folks like you and me, mm -hmm. fundamental questions about demystifying the magic of media technologies, beguiling or interesting to people who only care about right. what is easy for them to communicate, and not the idea that it is in some way scarred by its myths of origin. Right. And these myths of origin are understood by going back millennia. Right, right, right. One level. But certainly a century. That you can't understand the internet unless you understand the origins of drama. You can't understand telephony today right. unless you've read Harold Innes. Right, right, right. You can't understand the idea of communication without looking at really the great Canadian debates. Yeah. yeah. Whether they're about the staples economy mm -hmm. or Dependency the broadcasting theory, right. economy, mm -hmm. whether they're about dependent. How do you manage that? Or are Canucks just more open to this shit? Yeah, no, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, one of the things that I try to do is help me out here. I, I'll, I'll try. I'll try the best that I can. I mean, I mean, I, I, I think that in many ways, I think we tend to, in many ways, I think we tend to flatter. Um, uh, our students in ways which is misplaced, um, which is that I think we tend to think that they know more than we think that they know, and that's not an insult to say that they don't know more, but that I think that they that they benefit from. I'm okay for now, actually. Thank you. Can I get a cup of tea, though? English breakfast, please. Um, and so. And so I, and also I tend to think that they think, I, I tend to think that students think that, um, you know, that this stuff is inaccessible to them. And so one of the things that I try to do is to try the best that I can to basically say, I mean, this is a humanistic kind of way, which is to say, all we are talking about is that we are simply the latest in a long line of people asking basically the same sorts of questions. And so, you know, um, they, I think what's happened is that they have become, or we have allowed them to become um, mystified um, about what we do and how we do it. And so I often say that, I often, I often tell people, students, so much pressure is placed on professors um, to prepare students to, to, you know, to enter the job market. Um, but the last time I looked for a job, I think it was before Y2K. Um, and but but that nobody. There ever, are some listeners who weren't alive that's when true. Y2K happened. That's true. That's true. Um, you have a far you more did. youthful demographic than, than I think you. Do. I know. I'm um, I'm out there getting people to make their initial choices about toothpaste. <laughs> that's right. Right. That's I am right. the desirable demographic. That's right. Um, so that there's so much, and yet nobody ever teaches, and then nobody ever asks me or expects me to try and teach them how to do this job, which is how to be academics, how do academics work, um, how do they ask questions, how do they frame things, how do they write, why do they take on the things that they do. And so that's, the, that's my kind of orientation way of doing it. And then the second way is to take things, is to, I, I, I really do think that, I really do think that sometimes the most banal things are sometimes the most insightful. Um, so let's take, for example, um, so I'll talk about something like Facebook, for example, and I'll say, let's take, or Facebook and privacy, something like Facebook or, and uh -huh. privacy, so, or new media and privacy, and I'll say, really, you know, Facebook is just uh, a, a, you know, is a digital version of something called the directory. And we've had directories for a long time. Both your books, you know, the things that they hand out at high schools with pictures and information, right? But also directories like the Yellow Pages or the phone book. Um, and that, you know, people for a long time um, used to want to, when, tele when telephones first started, um, many people wanted to be in the phone book, which would, which would advertise their phone number and their address. Um, because it was, a, it was literally a status update. It was a way to say, like, I'm rich enough to be able to have a telephone. But even something totally banal, like, um, I always say, you know, a, 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 an office directory. So the directory in front of my building um, in the office, which says where I am. So it'll say, you know, like, this is the river building, or this is, like, where I am, and if you want to find Professor Ragland, he'll be in this office, right? And what I say is, well, the, what I am doing here is I am publicizing, I am making public where to find me, right? And the reason why you publicize this information is so that you will be found, right? That, 
so that you, Toby, aren't walking through the building just knocking on everyone's door trying to find my office. The reason why you would list yourself in the yellow pages um, or in the phone book is to be found so that somebody will call you or in the yellow pages do business with you or something like that. And that being that to put yourself in public is to give up a bit of yourself in the name of some of being found. So I'll use like a very simple example. Um, and say, really, Facebook, of course, the stakes are different, so the difference now is Facebook. The difference is, well, that information about you is global. That information is, you know, is international. That information is held by a private company. That information can be searched by governments. That information, right. But that, that's a simply just a continuation of a practice of looking people up, right, which people have been doing for quite some time. What about making the next move, which is the one that I'm constantly seeking to do and failing, which is to say, these pricks are ripping you off. Right. Because unlike I, with the yellow pages where you're advertising quite proposably, right. or as it's now called in California, YP, YP right. there are banner ads everywhere on every fucking bus stop. Right. Here. But also, like, the name YP it's um, is such a funny name, given it's... I mean, it's the last gasp of desperation. Right. right. Facebook, the F word, Twitter, right. the T word, right. just like all forms of membershiping you right. in new media, are about being able to sell your subjectivity and your preferences right. in ways that are finely grained compared to right. a basic entry true. in the phone book. True. true, How do you get them to see that your intellectual property is being colonized? Right. You should be protesting rather than collaborating. Right. Well, I think you do. I mean, I think you do exactly that. I mean, it's funny because I, I mean, I tell people I tell people that I'm always threatening to get to go off of Facebook, not because Facebook owns my data, but because it's not fun anymore. Um, because that at the beginning it used to be fun. Um, people used to, you know, throw um, you know goblins at each other and send each other good <laughs> karma. Or I used to my favorite one of the things I used to do was play Scrabble with some. There was a game called Scrabulous before Scrabble so came along. Intellectual property went. That's right. Whoa. That's right. Was you know I play Scrabble with someone on Facebook and that the, you know the. The, you know, seven words, seven letters. <laughs> that's right. I bet you specialize. I used to get routinely whiffed, actually, by my <laughs> by the person who used to play me, but I enjoyed it very much. I should much. say, it's very Canadian to enjoy being whipped. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's a colonial so thing. And these appalling cultural stereotypes Indeed. are pouring out of me, but I can't Indeed. help it. Indeed. Um, uh, but we'll win in the end. Because um, <laughs> you're better. That's right. You're better yes. people. Our moral support, superiority will trump you in the end. Um, or we look like you, and then when you're not looking, we'll eat your brain. Um, um, but, um, uh, so, you know, I mean, I, you know, what you tell them, so, so you know, I, I mean, what's interesting is, I, you know, I, I asked them, how did it come to be that Facebook was now your calling card? Which was, it could have, we could have all had made up names. I could have told you, hey, I'm going to be Sophia Loren, um, and you're <laughs> well, going to be actually, Mark Wahlberg. You look and much more like <laughs> Sophia Loren than you look like me. I'm frequently stopped on the street um, by people who ask me if I'm Sophia Loren. So. Last week, a man without front teeth pulled me up in the street and said, Depeche Mode? <laughs> yeah. Or the police? Yes. I used to have red glasses, and people used to call me Sally because they thought it was Sally Jesse Raphael. I had a big <laughs> kind of hair, big hair. Um, so that, that humiliation is now global. Um, I think her hair color may be more <laughs> the product of the bottle than the genetics. Indeed, though. that's right, that's right. This is all mine. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I try to say to them, you know, I, like I try to say to them, it doesn't have to be this way, and that there's no reason why um, there's no, this isn't hooked up to your brain, um, that it doesn't read your mind, um, and that that there is a kind of active choice. And I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, like I say, what's so interesting about what's so interesting about social media or Twitter or whatever is that as much as there is such an emphasis on or a concern or an anxiety about privacy. There is the equally powerful impulse for publicity, um, which is that, you know, and academics, I have to say, so those of us who are on Facebook are just as guilty, um, which is that we publicize our, we love to publicize ourselves um, to say, this has been published, I'm going here, these are pictures of my children, here's, you know, here's the great stuff that's happening to me, here's the amazing things that are happening to me. And so on the one hand, we're, 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 we're fascinated with the, with the capacity that we have to, to tell people about us. And yet, on the other hand, we're terrified about the fact that 
that information is now public, even though we've made it public. And so I try and tell them, well, what is that about us? Because the, because the equally attendant impulse is to say, well, what goes on in my life is my business and does not need sharing. And so I try and tell them, so I, you know, I, like, I try the best that I can to say, like, this is not a public company. Everybody who, or this is not a public institution, sorry, it's not a public institution. Um, that, it is a public company. Well, yeah, it's a public company now. Um, this, these are not public, company, uh, public institutions that you had to sign up to agree to do it. And that just, uh, just like you don't walk on a car lot and say, um, I'll take the yellow one without driving it, finding out how much it costs, um, whether it's a standard or automatic, whether there's two seats or four, um, what it's like on gas, then you shouldn't just go onto these onto Facebook and say, okay, whatever goes. And standard means stick shift or manual, right. and gas means petroleum. Yeah, that's right. It's the great cultural interlocutor in Indeed, or diesel. <laughs> or, di or, di or diesel if or you're driving a Mercedes, as your friends in Freiburg would That's right. perhaps say. That's right. Well, Ira Wagman, thank you very much for test driving with us <laughs> your Danny K. Borscht Belt thank you. interpretation. Thank you. I'll be appearing in the Catskills throughout January. <laughs> He's the last standing comic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Everyone right. else has gone down to Florida with the invention of that's air conditioning. Right. Yeah. This man we need funnier academics, that's true. We do. And could I invite you, if possible, to come back to the pod when you finished your UNESCO UNICEF research, mm -hmm. and especially when you finished your Danny Kaye stuff? Sure. Because I think that will really be meaningful for a lot of us, and if nobody else, it certainly will for me. Thank you. I'd be happy to. Great.